Turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter in the book of Genesis, and we'll read the first three verses for our consideration this evening. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll read the first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. We're going to look at some of the nuts and bolts of this text this evening as much as our ability enables us, and then we're going to apply it in terms of the entirety of the revelation of Scripture, because the main doctrines of the Scripture regarding God and his plan of salvation is here in the very first three verses. Now, it doesn't need to be repeated, but I'm going to repeat it. Uh, that uh, Genesis is certainly the most important book in the Bible. It's the most important book in the Bible because it's the foundation of everything else that comes. Just as an edifice like this is meaningless without foundation, and so the book of Mos- books of Moses, and especially the book of Genesis, is the very foundation pillar of the scriptures. And we have a tendency, at least when I was growing up, we had this tendency to pay attention only to the New Testament, almost, and perhaps I should be stronger than almost, ignoring most of the Old Testament. A lot of the people in my early days used to walk around carrying a New Testament. And at times, a New Testament with the Psalms, because the Gideons printed it like that. But remember, almost two-thirds of the New Testament has some sort of reference to the Old Testament. Either direct quotation or allusions or ideas and themes woven in. And we can illustrate that, but we don't have the time. I'm simply stating it for this evening. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, even when he was on this earth, he tells that marvelous story about the rich man and the poor man Lazarus. And you notice how when the, poor, when the rich man asks for the poor man to be sent to Hades, that is the place of the departed, What he says is that if someone came back from the dead, his brothers would listen. And Abraham's answer is no. His answer is, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen if someone came back from the dead. And that, of course, is best illustrated in the death and resurrection of Christ. Most of the people who've heard the gospel do not receive it. 
And so we do not receive Moses and the prophets or take the summation of what the gospel is. Isn't interesting? One of the great theologians and pastor teachers that once held a, a conference for missionaries in the United States. And this is what he said. This is about 30 years ago. He said that he found that almost 60% of missionaries could not define what the gospel was clearly and briefly. Now, of course, we are much better off in the United Kingdom. Uh, but that's the case. And where the Lord uh, speaks about the gospel, he speaks about it in terms of its foundations, of course, in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, you remember, uh, we have uh, the very definition of the gospel, the best definition of the gospel in the first few verses. And what does it say? Christ Jesus came into the world to die, what? According to the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures. And he rose again according to the prophetic scriptures. And so there's no question that the Old Testament is most important, just as it is the foundation. And then a brief word or two about the man who wrote it. A brief word for us, because it is nothing new, but by way of reminder, first of all, Stephen tells us just before his death or him being put to death as a martyr. This is what Stephen tells us. Moses, Acts 7 and verse 22, was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, we've got to understand it in the context of what is being said. Egypt was a mighty empire, the greatest of empires for hundreds of years, even today. We have something of the remnant of Egyptian empire and its glory and wisdom. We're told that uh, the Egyptians were so advanced, uh, they, we have record of them by artifacts and so on, uh, doing um, surgeries on the brain. And we're not told whether they lived after the surgery, uh, but they attempted it. This was the most advanced civilization of the day for centuries. And what we're told is that Moses was learned in all the learning of the Egyptians. And then we're told he was mighty in words and deeds. There's no mean personage whom God had chosen and trained by his great sovereign power. Of course, he created him with great capacities. That's as far as his background is concerned, his learning, his capacities, and so on. What about his spiritual stature? Now listen to these words again uh, from Numbers. This is what Jehovah says, which Moses records, Numbers 12 and verse 6. Then he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Jehovah, Make myself known to him in a vision. And this is, of course, Jehovah referring to the fact that there are many ways in which the Lord Jehovah reveals himself through the prophets, through visions, dreams. 
sometimes strong impression, sometimes through study and uh, research and thought, um, and the Lord forms what he has to say through his instruments. If there is a prophet among you, I speak to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. And then listen to this. This is the contrast. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. Even plainly. And he sees the form of Jehovah. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You know, we, uh, there's, a, there's a saying, a proverb uh, in, the, in the wisdom literature which says, there is a generation that is wise in its own eyes. You know, we think because we have these little gadgets and devices and we know how to operate them, that we are wiser than our forebears. Not at all. We have more knowledge. We stand on their shoulders. But remember uh, that uh, the wisdom of the ages is not to be despised, especially biblical wisdom and the capacities of these men like Moses and David and Paul are immense. And so uh, some key truths from the text. Now we know that Moses lived 1,500 years, about 1,450. There's a little bit of a debate uh, about the date, but let's just say around 1,500 years before Christ. So he's writing this 3,500 years ago. But the subject matter of his writing relates to a time at the very beginning of creation and then later on creation and history. It's uh, useful to bear those things in mind. And now the text. Uh, We have in verse 1 the basic account of creation all summed up in one brief Hebrew sentence. In English it's one or two words longer, but it's also brief and dense and heavy and weighty in the English language. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Here we have time and space. In the beginning, heaven and the earth. Of course, in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew language, uh, heaven is one word, shemayim, heaven, used for uh, three different places. There is the heaven of heavens which is the place we are told that the Apostle Paul was lifted up. And of course, he had no expression. He was unable to express any of those things because they are dimensions far beyond human capacities. And then there is heaven mentioned as in terms of the cosmos, the whole universe. The heaven can also mean the sky. You look up to the heavens... You're looking up into the sky. Well, here it means it's an expression of phrase, heaven and the earth covering the whole of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There is time, there is space, there is power and intelligence, isn't there? God created. 
of what we see around us and we ourselves and all the life forms are not the results of some chemical reactions and primordial ooze. We don't have to have PhDs and massive intellectual capacities to see that something cannot come out of nothing. A fool knows that something cannot come out of nothing. That's why the Bible tells us the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That doesn't mean that some of these fools are not intelligent people, but their conclusions about the existence of God is absolute and utter folly. And then we are told in the first verse that God created. Now, this is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. It's the word bara. It's not used often. The Latin theologians use the expression ex nihilo. Ex means out of. We know the word exit. It's the way out. Nihilo, if you've read... uh, um, abstract uh, thinking, then you know uh, the expression nihilism means nothing. Ex nihilo. In other words, God created out of nothing by his spoken word. Um, Sometime, I don't know, I think it was in the 70s or 80s, uh, we, at least I noticed that some of these uh, movies and TV programs which used to end with produced by or written by and mainly with reference to producers changed from being produced to created by. You see there is nothing of course man is made in the image of God and we have the stamp of God's image upon us and there is a likeness of God in a finite sense imparted to us But you see, we do not create out of nothing. Only God creates out of nothing. An artist has to use the abilities God has given him. The perception and the perspectives God has given him. He has to take paint that someone has made from the raw materials that God has provided. He has got to have a canvas that someone has produced. We create nothing like God creates. And so in the Hebrew language, what we are told here in the very first, in the very first and opening words is that God created of of nothing. He speaks of the immensity of the power of God and the creative ability of God. It's a stunning word. No one can plumb the depths of it. It's simply stated, but it gives us the very source of origin, of meaning, of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and his almighty power. And no wonder the psalmist, the psalmist did not have knowledge, scientific knowledge, as we have today with our space travel and advanced and sophisticated um, telescopes and so on. But the psalmist could look up into the heavens and say, how excellent is your name. Because as the Apostle Paul, a thousand years, tells us in Romans chapter 1, that the created, the visible creation, is the handiwork of the invisible God. 
and God has made it evident to them. He later on tells us that man suppresses the knowledge of God that is innately within them. And why is that? Suppresses it in unrighteousness, says the Apostle Paul. In other words, the whole argument about the existence of God is nothing to do with intelligence. It's, got, it's a moral issue. If man acknowledges a God who is moral and who rules, then of course he has to acknowledge obedience to him. So he suppresses the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. And so here we have this tremendous and infinite truth about the infinite God. You see, we speak about miracles, we speak about, we speak about possibilities. Well, here is the great miracle, the existence of an uncreated creator. Sometimes children ask this, and philosophers refer to this question in more sophisticated terms, but children would often say, well, who created the world? And you tell them, God created the world. And they might ask, well, who created God? But God is the uncreated being. Everything else is created. The heaven, the earth, the holy angels. Everything else is created. The category of creation does not come to the creator. He is the uncreated God. And so we are, first of all, exposed to the God through the creation that is around us so that through our senses and awareness we might wonder and praise the God of creation and be thankful to him. Sometimes you get into a biblical or theological discussion with people and they say, well, what about the people who have not heard the gospel? How is God going to judge them? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us. What was known of God was evident within them and without them in creation. And then we read, neither were they thankful. You see, you don't have to hear the gospel to come before the judgment seat of God and be condemned. Every human being knows that they ought to be thankful to God and bow themselves before God. And so here is the first great foundational statement, and we should go back to it all the time. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who gave us the Bible. This is the true and the living God, the uncreated great I am. Well, the second verse tells us that God created the rudimentary elements of what is going to make up the universe. Look at verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. I see that our Time is going, so I'm going to be as quick as possible with the next two verses. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In other words, God first created all the elements that would be the 
basis out of which he would shape and reorder and make the universe and particularly the earth habitable for man. Look again at verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. A world of matter. A world of everything that the scientists today know and they will go on to discover. All the elements God spoke into existence out of absolute nothing. And so someone might ask, well, did God create a disordered world? No, that's not what is being spoken of here. What's being stated here is that the very basic, basic elements of the universe was created first. And then God goes on to shape it in six orderly creative days. If I'm to give an example of this the best I can, it'll be something like that of a sculptor. We're told of the great Michelangelo that he would go looking in a quarry and he could see in a stone the exact image of the sculpture that he was going to make. Well, it's very similar. Then he would get this marble cut out and then he would chip and shape it. It's very similar to that. The only difference is this. Michelangelo had to go to a quarry and find the right stone. God created the elements of the universe. And then he begins to shape them. And that's the record of the rest of Genesis chapter 1. And we're given a precise picture of this. Look again at verse 2. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And then these words. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. See, this is a picture of a mother hen sitting upon the eggs, incubating the eggs. And this picture is, of course, picked up. The Lord Jesus picks up this picture in terms of protectiveness. Uh, from judgment. You remember in Matthew chapter 23, he looks upon Jerusalem. It's the last time he's going to be in Jerusalem. And he is deeply and profoundly grieved. He's also going to pronounce the deepest woe upon Jerusalem. And he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. That with regard to salvation and protection. But it's the kind of picture. This picture is there throughout the Bible. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep and the elements of the world. And then God creates light in verse 3. God said, let there be light. We speak a lot. Our words have power, but... Very limited power. Unfortunately, we can do a lot of harm with our words, the way we speak. But God's word and his power are inseparable. What he declares will come to pass. That's why we read, we read in our scripture reading this morning from 1 Peter 1, which is a quotation from Isaiah 40, 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What God speaks happens, and he creates light. Incidentally, this is not the light of the sun and the moon. This is some kind of cosmic light apart from the sun and the moon. Could be relating to stars or whatever it is. It's not the sun and the moon. How do we know that? Because when we read verse 14, we are told, Then God said, Let there be light in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Verse 16, Then God made two great lights. That comes afterwards. This is suddenly in the midst of dark but created matter, God creates light. Now to the application. I see that I've taken a lot of time in trying to explain the text as, much, as best as I can. But let's look at the application. As I said, the very first words of Moses through the Spirit is a mighty deep. Let me touch upon what the word that Moses uses for God. In the beginning, God, Elohim. Elohim really means the almighty God. God has many different names in the Bible. He has only one personal name, which is in the English language translated as Lord in capitals, Jehovah, Yahweh, meaning I am that I am, but here he uses the title Elohim, means the Almighty One. See how he uses the most appropriate name, because Genesis 1 is really an explosive description of the power of God. The God who can speak things into existence. The God who created the heaven and the earth. But there's more here about God. Because that word Elohim is in the plural in the Hebrew language. The singular is El. In the English, of course, we add the word S, you might say, tree and trees, sun and sons. That's how we generally get the plural. Well, in the Hebrew, they add the words or the sound Im, I am, in the English language. For example, seraph is the singular. Seraphim is the plural. Cherub is the singular. Cherubim is the plural. El is the singular. And Elohim is the plural. Now there are some people who say, well, this is just the usage of the plural in the majestic sense. Like the queen is reported to have said, we are not amused. Well, she's not more than one person, but it's a use of those who are sovereign in earthly terms. No, no, the Bible is very precise. So I think here you have not a full-blown doctrine, but the very seed form of this mystery of the Godhead. More than one person in the Godhead. And some people like Jehovah's Witness, Witnesses, they say, well, that's a complete contradiction 
in terms and that's unreasonable. No, no, it isn't. We are not saying that there is one God and three gods. That would be contradicting every kind of reasonableness. What we are saying is that there is one God, but three persons. Just like later on, we are going to be told God created man, one race, male and female made he them. Now, that's not an absolute illustration. Nothing can be an absolute illustration of even comprehensible truth, let alone the infinite God. But you get the idea here. Two genders, of course, now it's, what, 100 plus 1 and counting. Now, there's two genders, and that's it. But two genders, one humanity, one race. Or you might take the family, a father, a mother, and children. One unit. Now, having said that, we cannot describe God as a family of gods. It's one God. The Shema, Deuteronomy, tells us, O Israel, Jehovah, your God is one. One God, three persons. Not one person and three persons. That would be a nonsense. Or one God and three gods. That's not what the Bible teaches. One God and Three persons. By the way, is not ne- merely in the word. That's important. That's where we begin. But look at the rest of the text, even in the three verses. Look at verse 2. And the Spirit of God was upon the face of the waters. Already we have another person of the Godhead in the first three verses of the scriptures. You could go to Proverbs where wisdom or the word of God is personalized. We don't have time for it, but in John 1 we have that. The word was God. The spoken word, Christ was the instrument of the Father's creation through the instrument. Without him was nothing made. And so at the very beginning we have here the wonderful truth of the greatest mystery in existence, which is God himself. Secondly, notice how Genesis 1.1 rules out atheism. It is God who created. It rules out polytheism. The first few years of my life, I was in India. It's full of gods. That's true in most parts of the world. Unfortunately, it's true here now. The people are worshipping idols, and apparently our prime minister has the picture of this elephant god on his desk. It rules out polytheism. God, Jehovah God is creator. Not only rules out polytheism, it rules out pantheism. Some of you young people might have seen, I haven't seen it, just because I have an aversion to the whole idea, the the movie that uh, Tim Burton made, I forget it, it's a Hindi word, but it's, it's all about, it comes out of this idea of pantheism. Everything is God, and God is in everything. Now, here we have a complete demarcation between the creation and the creature. God created. He's not part of the creation. He upholds creation, but he's not part of the creation. He is in every place, but he's... Not everything that he created is a part of him or uh, does it uh, speak of anything like polytheism. 
And not only that, it speaks and rules out evolution, doesn't it? God created. It's not through the natural processes. And besides, what is natural processes? Some people use foolish things like chance. Well, what is chance? Chance is a word we use to describe what we cannot compute. But chance has no power. Chance is a nothing thing. God created the heavens and the earth. And so even in the first verse, we have something about God, about his nature, about the creator and his being. And then, notice here we are told that the spirit of God, first let me use go to the third verse. We'll come back to the second verse. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, this is exactly how the Apostle Paul describes regeneration. You remember this verse? Of course you do. You will when I mention it. God, who created light out of darkness, has shone in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Far greater than the creation of the heaven and the earth and the whole universe. But very much like it and used as an example, this God, by his spirit, steps into the darkness of the fallen sons of Adam and Eve and speaks life into existence. Why are you here tonight? If you have ever had a conviction of sin, is the supernatural work of God the Spirit. Just like he created light out of darkness in Genesis 1 and 3. If you're continuing to walk according to God's word, confessing your sins, trusting in him, it's because, as the Apostle Paul says, God who is at work within you, both to do, both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's a supernatural work from within. And it's a far greater work because the creation of the universe was simply by the spoken word. What did it take him to, to give us new life? It took him to offer his son as a propitiation for our sins. And lastly, going back to verse 2, in the spirit of God, moved upon the face of the waters, hovering, incubating, shaping, forming, and so on. It's the process of making the world inhabitable. Doesn't this speak of the Christian's life? We have new life, but there is much that needs to be shaped. There is still darkness in many areas. We are not without sin. This is what, if, if verse 3 pictures justification, which is a declarative work of God, completely the work of God. Justification is a legal term. It's God declaring the holy righteous God, declaring us righteous on the basis of his son. 
It's what uh, theologians call a monergistic work. In, in other words, it's entirely the work of God. But verse 2 speaks about the Holy Spirit at work in the hearts of those who are regenerated to mortify sin, to shape them. Or as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that as they read the scriptures or hear it or hear it preached and so on, they are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so you see, we have here all the great doctrines of the Bible in the first three verses of the scripture. God, the universe, origin, meaning, salvation, sanctification. And the God who began the work of creation and ended it by pronouncing that all was very good is doing a far greater work. In ordinary people like you and I, we're not the great movers and shakers of the world. By God's grace, there are some great people who are in the kingdom, but by and large, they're ordinary people and many poor people. But he's doing the most unimaginable work beyond our comprehension in the hearts and lives of human beings, boys and girls, creating light about the knowledge of God, about their own sinfulness. And then he's continuing to shape us. Now we don't always listen to God and submit ourselves to his word. What does the Apostle Peter say? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. What does that mean? Does that mean we stick our hands in our pocket and have some kind of a holy um, demeanor about it? No, no. It means actively submitting to the word of God in obedience. The faith unto obedience. That's the only evidence the evidence of salvation is not some experience in the past or in the present. Remember, all the apostles were gifted by the Holy Spirit in peculiar ways. And one of them was a devil. He had all the experiences and the gifts. He had more experiences in the presence of Christ and more giftedness than any of us running around in the last 20 centuries. But he was a devil. Now, what is the evidence that we are continuing to repent, that we are continuing to believe in God, that we are continuing to submit ourselves to the word? And we are. Then God will bring us to the fullness of the new creation in glory. And maybe, maybe praise him for doing so great a work in unworthy creatures like you and me. Amen. Let's respond by singing hymn number 319. Spirit of God that moved of old upon the water's darkened face. Come when our faithless hearts are cold and stir them with an inward grace.
remain standing if you're able and we'll close in prayer and with benediction. Oh God the Spirit, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will illumine our hearts and warm our souls that we might seek God the Father through Christ, the God-man, according to the word of God, so that we might be shaped from one degree of glory to another in his image. Lord, we pray that you will enlarge our scanty thought about you. And we are so often enraptured by human beings and their achievements and foolishly sometimes our own capacities. Oh Lord, help us to be a God-besotted people and help us to bow low before you in our spirits and give thanks to the Almighty God who has redeemed a wretch like me. May we know what it is to say with the publican, God be merciful to me, the sinner, because of the Son of God who came and accomplished salvation for us. And, O oh God, the Holy Spirit, forgive us because we often quench you, we grieve you, and we don't even think about it. Forgive us. And we pray that you will bless us with increasing faith and repentance and love and obedience for God. And now may the grace, mercy, and peace of the eternal triune Jehovah God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with each one of us savingly and keepingly until we are presented perfect and without blemish before the God of our creation and the God of our redemption. Amen.